Does it seem like we've reached a time where nothing qualifies as sin today? Proverbs 21 verse 2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. You might be thinking that you can do whatever you want and just believe that it is not sin. We may have absolved ourselves of sin, but the God of judgment is still alert. If sin is still real and there are consequences both temporal and eternal for the sinner, shouldn't we talk about that? Yes, we should. And today we will on this episode of Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor of St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. So Aaron, do you share my current day assessment that for the most part, at least it looks like, every way of a man is right in his own eyes? Yeah, this is a this has been the problem throughout all of human history, as far as we can tell, is that people have always done what they wanted to do. We've always it, it's impossible to not do what you want to do, and as long as we're doing what we want to do, and we're prone to do damage when we do what we want to do, that that that's sin. And what, what's different now, it seems like to me, is I mean, people, like I said, people have always done what they wanted to do, but what's, what's different now is that people don't call that s- sin anymore when they do damage, is that we've removed that language from our, from our vocabulary, whereas in, in previous generations, and th- this goes back um, prior to the Enlightenment, so prior to the 16, 1700s, when we did what was wrong, we had language for that. Now we don't. We've gotten rid of sin language, and so people do what they want to do. But you know, it's personal choice. Um, if it's something that everybody sort of knows is bad and damaging, we can put it in the category of aberrant behavior or mental illness or some sort of uh, you know glitch in their biology or in their psychology that makes them do that. So we've replaced the language of sin and evil with, you know, therapeutic language, and I'm not at all saying that there's anything wrong with um, using uh, psychology um, uh, to to explain why people do what they do. I'm not saying that there's no such thing as mental illness either. There definitely is, but it, even I, I remember. Uh, well, I mean, I this is, happens all the time. I remember reading a story. Uh, several years ago about uh, a pilot in Germany who flew his plane. He was a, a, a full commuter jet, and he was flying over the Alps. And Well, he was a co-pilot. The pilot gets up to go use the restroom, and the co-pilot locks the door from the inside and then steers the plane into the side of the mountain while everybody's pounding on the door and screaming. And that was, that was kind of the moment where uh, – uh, aviation regulators all over the world decided we're, nobody's allowed to be in the cockpit by themselves anymore. And so if one of the pilots has to step out for something, one of the flight attendants will go and will stay in the cockpit. I remember reading those stories about that, that, that guy who did that, and they were all framed in terms of his struggles with mental illness, which definitely was a, a major part of it, you know, and, and sh- should have been addressed earlier by the, by the man and his family and the airline's. 
but everybody was real reluctant to use the word evil. But I just think it's patently clear that as much as mental illness is involved, the murder of over 100 people is evil. It's evil. And that doesn't mean, again, those two things can go together. But we've stopped using that language, and so we don't have any ability to, 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 to we don't have any framework anymore to judge our own actions as right or wrong. So and, you use the word evil. Yeah. Can we substitute the word sin? Well, yeah. I mean, so, so sin. You, you, they're equivalent. Yeah, at least in, in the way I'm using them right now. And, and a big part of this is, I know I'm rambling a bit here, Chuck, you can stop me in a second. Is that we've 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 dispatched with the idea of a God who is active and present. Um, many people don't believe in God anymore. Many of us who do believe in God believe Him to be a sort of distant God who's not really involved in the here and now. Like I've said before, we call that deism. It's a belief in God, but He's not really connected to our universe and our world. And if God's not there, then the things that happen don't really have any reference to Him. If all that if all that exists is the physical universe, then what happens must be explainable in terms of physical things, um, neurons and chemicals flowing inside of the human body, and every everything that we do can be boiled down to nature or nurture, even the bad things that we do. And I'm yeah, I'm a Christian. I just imported that word "bad" into the conversation. Even the bad things we do can be boiled down to nature or nurture. You know, did, did we do those bad things because we were trained to do those when we were younger? In which case, it's not really our fault. Or is it because our nature? Because there's something in our again, it's not our fault. And so the trade-off is is that we've lost this language of evil, and uh, along with the language of evil, we've lost the language of God or good. If there's no such thing as sin or evil. Then it doesn't really make any difference whether whether I go over and mow the little old lady's yard to help her out, or if I go over and steal money from her. It's both both of those things are equally just me acting according to either my biology or my upbringing, and you can't call you can't call that wrong or good. I mean, society might need to lock me away if I've got a big enough problem that. You know, I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I'm offending other people, but, but to use the language of good or evil for that is, is it's not allowed anymore. And I think that what you wanted to do today with the, with our conversation here is maybe call us back to using this language of sin, not because we want ourselves to feel bad or other people to feel bad, but if we use the language of sin, it opens us up to the possibility of good as well. And that there is a God who has a solution for this problem. You mentioned all of human history, and yeah, pretty much from Genesis four onward. Well, Genesis three too, for that matter. But at, you know, Cain kills Abel. It's like, okay, you want to know what the consequences of this fall in the Garden of Eden are? Well, here's your first clue: Cain kills Abel, and so it has been up until this present day. Mm-hmm. In general, we know that I can talk about Chuck human history. When I was a teenager and when I was in high school, I stayed overnight at a friend's house, as teenagers sometimes do, and it just caught my attention that his older sister was sort of moving around the house clandestinely, almost in the shadows. What's up with that? You know, I asked him, well, she's pregnant. She's, somebody got her pregnant. 
And so she was done with high school. She was at home all the time. Um, she certainly was, she seemed to be, I mean, I didn't ask her, but she seemed to be ashamed. And that's pretty much the way it was at that stage of my life. Being pregnant out of wedlock was shameful, I guess, because people thought it was a sin. Now we have high school girls who get pregnant and they're in class and everybody is pretty much told, you know, don't shame the person who's in class and let's be kind, be generous. I'm not opposed to that. But it reflects the change that has happened just in my lifetime. I think we used sin language when I was a boy, at least more than we do now. And I'm not sure if that's recoverable. I'm not sure if we can, I don't want to say go back. I want to say go forward right. to yeah, recovering forward. that language yeah. and getting some clarification on that. We, To me, we look like from the question of what is sin, we're about to fly into the mountainside. Yeah. That's the way it feels. Right. Am I exaggerating? Am I? No, especially with issues of human sexuality. You're right. It's a good example. And I, I do I do appreciate your comment there about like, you know, we don't want to, sh shame is not the right solution. Like shaming people is not, is not going to help. But, you know, since the, in this country, since the 1960s, um, the sexual revolution has taken away that notion that there's anything about our sexuality that can be described as either right or wrong because sexuality is almost exclusively a product of your biological urges. And so you can't control this. This is who you are. And so to describe it as bad or good is is false. Well, of course, that comes from a, a that comes from a view that sexuality does not come from God, that it's natural, it's physical. And um, as a Christian, I would say that no, sexuality does come from God. And so there is a possibility to talk about bad sex and good sex in that in a way that makes sense. But you're right. I, you know that that definitely has changed, and it's changed quickly over the course of the past fifty, sixty years, and it's changing rapidly all the time. Human attitudes towards human sexuality, which once you take off the notion that sex can be good or bad, that's what's going to happen. And um, Francis Schaeffer said that you know, 150 years ago, you could tell a girl be a good girl, and she would know exactly what you mean. And now if you tell a girl, and he was saying this in the 1970s, now if you tell a girl, be a good girl, she'll look at you like you're talking in a foreign language. And that would go for a guy too, you know, um, because there's no more right or wrong because there's no more. Well, sense. see if we can simplify it. Suppose I were to say doing right things is good, doing wrong things is sin. Simple as that, black and white, should be able to process that with, with little trouble. What do you think? Is that a good biblical summary of sin? No, it gets at a little bit of it. it this is true, you know, doing good. It, it, it's, it's good, to, according to the Bible, it's good to mow the little old lady's yard. It's bad to steal her money. That's true. Uh, when the Bible talks about sin, though, it goes way back behind things that we do or say. Sin is fundamentally, now I'm going to use religious language here, it's a failure of vocation. We were called, when God created Adam and Eve and put them on the planet, he asked them to do three things. One was um, to care for each other. To, the second thing was to care for the environment, to care for the garden, to care for their universe. And the third thing was to worship him. 
And um, what we've done since then is we failed at all three of these things. We're no, we, don't, we no longer care for each other. We're now turned in on ourselves to where what I value most highly is my own needs, my own plans, my own thoughts. And everybody else around me either participates in helping me in those plans, in which case I can foster those relationships, or they are against me. They try to hinder my plans, in which case I need to fight against them. My relationship with God, uh, you know, we were created for the second thing, or maybe I made that the third thing, a relationship with God. Uh, we no longer are interested in that. There's too much, um, that's too oppressive to have a divine being who has the ability to make rules about what I should do is oppressive. We've abandoned that. We no longer care for our environment. Um, we, we, tr- we treat our world or our coworkers or our yards as things that belong to us that can be manipulated according to our own needs. And if you look at any sin that you could, any, what the Bible calls sin that you can commit, whether it's committing adultery or stealing or lying, it will come down to a failure of one of those vocations that stands behind it. So, so if I tell a lie, that's a sin, the Bible says. But actually, the sin started not with the telling of the lie, but with the, I'm going to make up a scenario here, with the desire for money, that, that lust for money, the lust to serve myself with money, that caused me to lie on my taxes. So the lie on my taxes is this is a sin, definitely, like what you said is very, very true. But behind that is this failure of vocation, this lust to serve myself with my own money or to get money from somebody else. So sin is much bigger and much more pervasive. And so, and so the solution can't be, we'll just stop doing bad things and start doing good things. Because the sin, the, the problem runs way deeper than that inside of each one of us. So that takes care of my attempt to just simplify this. Uh, it's I'm not going to be able to do that. I guess it's going to be more complicated than that. And, and you mentioned adultery. Talk about the sixth commandment. It's a pretty simple commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Right. In Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28, Matthew quotes Jesus as saying, You have heard it was said, and you did, because it's in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her right. in his heart. Yeah. So here we have the claim from Jesus that even if you haven't engaged in the act, maybe you ran it through your mind, maybe you thought about it a little longer than you should have, but you didn't do it. You right. didn't act on it. You may still be guilty of sin right. just by having thought about it. Yeah. Uh, is, is that what Jesus is saying? Yeah, he's saying exactly, uh, well, I was going to say he's saying exactly what I was saying a minute ago, but that's like, he, he lived way long before me. So actually, I'm trying to repeat what he's been saying. He's not agreeing with me. I'm trying to agree with him. Um, so, so first of all, I, I think that the, the Bible would affirm that to murder somebody, well, let, let, me, let me come back to that point. Remind me to come back to that point about what's worse, to think about doing something wrong or doing something wrong. Let me, let me go back to what I was just going to say a second ago. What Jesus is saying is is what I was trying to say a minute ago, which is is that behind the sin of adultery, which it's wrong, it's wrong to cheat on your spouse. The Bible insists on that. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter, the, you know, so my biology, my biological urges, it doesn't matter the circumstances. 
that, you know, I, I don't like her anymore or whatever. It's wrong to cheat on my spouse, but there's something behind that sin that caused that sin, which is itself sinful. And that is now that I'm turned in on myself, now that I value myself above all others and above all things, my tendency is to see other human beings as objects for me to control or use for my own benefit. And even in my mind, the notion that another person, another woman exists for my sexual pleasure is objectifying to her, and that is sinful. It's a sign that it's not a sign, it's actually an outworking of my own brokenness, my own turned in on myselfness, that I see other people as sexual objects, or I see other people as. financial objects or um, or a career means to means to increase my career and we all know people like this I am a person like this I invest I think I've said this before in here that two people will come and visit my church and one of them is young and intelligent and uh, has a bright career and is engaging and the other person is maybe be maybe a little bit in a different place in life. Uh, maybe they've struggled a lot, and maybe they don't have a lot of money. And I'll just be uh, to be honest with you. And this is definitely sinful. It's very very evil of me. My gut instinct is to invest time and energy in trying to attract the well-to-do person or, or the 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 intellectually. In the the intellectually stimulating person James to my says church, you're not supposed to do that. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying is that it's wrong. It's evil. You're not supposed to do that, it's and sin. I find myself doing it. So, in other words, what I'm doing is it's sin to do that. But there's a deeper sin behind it, which is my fundamental view of humans is that they exist for my benefit, and if I find one that I think will really benefit me, I will invest in them, and one who I'm maybe not convinced that they are a benefit to me. They're both they're both valuable humans, but I see them as bit players, extras in the story of my life. And if I want to write a larger part for one of them in my story, I'm going to try to do that. That's the deeper, darker sin behind that. So give me a short answer here. You said remind me to uh, go back to yeah. which is worse, to thinking about it or then actually doing it. Right. Yes. Yeah. So this is the def- this is the difference in the definition between worse and wrong. So. Um, is it uh, so? Uh, well, if you have a math problem and the problem is two plus two, and you answer it two plus two equals five, that answer is wrong. If you answer it two plus two equals three hundred and forty-two, that answer is also wrong. On a math test, you'll they'll both count off against you, but one is clearly worse than the other. So the, the first person is clearly closer to getting it than the other person. And sin works the same way. All sin is equally wrong. In God's eyes, this is what Jesus is saying, is the sin of objectifying a woman or a man in your head for sexual reasons is wrong. The sin of actually sleeping with somebody outside of your marriage is also equally wrong. One is worse, though. One does more damage. The, 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 the one actually um, is... Uh, well, I mean, I don't have to explain this, right? Uh, yeah. I, I can like spend five minutes giving examples. I was with you. Two plus two is five. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So it's wrong to hate somebody enough to want to kill them. 
it would be way worse and way more damaging to actually kill them. So you have, I think, at least four times here in our conversation used the phrase something like turned in or curved in on ourselves. Right, yeah. And I think most of us understand you to be saying that we become self-centered. Yes. All of us know somebody who we think is self-centered. Uh-huh. Seems to be, you know, really concentrating on themselves. But is there, in the context of sin, in the context of the Bible, is there more meaning to that than just being a self-centered person? Is there more meaning to that? Well, so, so yeah. Is it deeper? Yes. It's actually the, I mean, it is deeper. It is the primal sin. I mean, this is why, you know, I, I use that language curved in on ourselves. That's actually Martin Luther's language describing what happened at the fall. Um, the results of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God is that we're all turned in on ourselves. And, and it is the, in many ways, it's the primal fault of humanity is that, so there's two sides to this coin. And those of you who are aware of the Ten Commandments will know that the first commandment has to do with not having any other gods except for the one true God. And that the last commandments have to do with um, not coveting. Well, th- these are flip sides of the same coin. There's a reason why they bookend the Ten Commandments. Don't have any other gods. Don't covet. Is because th- they're basically the same thing. Coveting is I want for myself. Self-worship. Yes. I That thing needs, that person should belong to me, even if it's just in my head. That thing should belong to me. That praise should belong to me. That that raise and promotion should belong to me. The flip side of that, it's the exact same thing, is to say, I don't want God to have that. I want that. I want the ultimate good. And what the first commandment says is, no, you're not allowed to have any other God besides him. Don't fear, love, and trust, Luther says, anything besides the creator of God. That means your love and trust can't be in money. Your fear can't be in I'm not sexually attractive. Those are the flip sides of the same coin. And so when we talk about self-centeredness, it's not just, well, some people are selfish. It's that we're, you know, like, man, all he talks about is his own interest at parties. He won't even let anybody else talk about what they're interested in. That, that's, that's a symptom of this deeper disease that all of us have, which is sin, evil, that we all struggle with. Sometimes on a huge scale that's super noticeable, those are the worst sins, right? But even on a small scale, we share that same disease with the rest of humanity. So the game changer is that in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates a an order where God is at the top. Yes, uh, neighbor is second, and self is last. This was the glory of God giving Eve to Adam. He gave him his first neighbor. And then in the fall, that was completely turned upside down. It was not just adjusted or recalibrated. It was turned completely upside down with self at the top. Right. Neighbor second, how can I use this person to advance my own glory? And God in my back pocket in case I need something that I can't quite do yeah. at, at the bottom. Yeah. Is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good way to start the conversation. But what's interesting is that when you look at this and you look at the way God has designed us, you look at the story of scripture, and if I look at my own, my own experience grappling with my own sinfulness, is that that order there actually it doesn't, I mean, I, I, I totally know what you're saying. It's a good way to start the conversation. But if God, 
it, it's not that like it's not that God's most important, then others, and then I'm least important. When I am when I am living in the vocation that God designed for me, when I am worshiping Him, and when my when I am turned outside of myself toward others, I will find that I am actually the most happy. That that's I actually elevate. That's my an own eye self. opener. Which that's a claim you made there. That's yes, pretty interesting. I am most fulfilled when I am serving others and when I'm worshiping God. I'm happiest. I'm most at peace when I am acting the way that I was created for. So so uh, so look if if I if I'm not serving the one true God, if I'm serving money, sex, or power, what I'll find is, is that I'm never happy. Because I'm, I, I don't ever have enough money. I don't ever get enough sex, and I don't ever have enough power. If I'm serving myself instead of my wife, I'll find that I'm constantly dissatisfied because she can't actually satisfy the needs that I have emotionally, physically, psychologically. Because we always want something more. Always want more. We always want more. However, if I am worshiping God, if I am satisfying myself, if I am... If I'm not drinking water from a broken cup, but if I'm being filled up at the infinite waterfall, I will find that I never have an empty cup. If I'm loving my wife and I'm most interested in her, I can love and serve her in such a way that I don't need her to make me happy because I'm turned out towards her. That's going to make me happy. That's going to make my conversations with her better. It's going to make my sex life with her better. It's going to make all of our time together better if I'm serving her instead, and she's serving me too. This is a, as as humans. This is a this is a relational thing. But what's happened is this: is that the, the, you know what, what you said with the fall is totally true. When we put ourselves at the top, we find you know so we, me first, and then God and others next, or whatever. What we find is that we've lost God and others by objectifying them, by turning them not into relational turn, relational people with whom I can connect and receive and give with, but as objects that I can use. We find that we lose them. And at the end of the day, because there's no God and there's no others, we find that we've lost ourselves as well. So by putting ourselves at the top of the ladder, we lose ourselves. By putting ourselves at the bottom of the ladder, we actually gain, gain ourselves. ourselves. Yep. Okay, let's do a lightning round here because our time is getting a little short here and I've still got a half a dozen questions right. that I'd like to ask you. Let's take a look at James 2. Uh, James writes, for whoever keeps the whole law, that'd be impressive, wouldn't it? Whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, just one. Right. Whoever keeps the whole law and fails in one point uh, has broken it all. Yes. Has broken it all. Right. So you don't go into court and say, well, you jaywalked. You go into court and say, you jaywalked, you committed adultery, you, you stole, you, you broke right, them all. Right. Well, now that just doesn't hardly make sense to me. Can you help me with that? Yeah. So Sorry to ask you that question and then ask for a short answer. That's not no. really quite fair. No, I'll try, I'll try to do the best I can. I'm not known for short answers, but I'll try to do the best I can. If, you know, so to go to your courtroom analogy, which I think is probably what's behind what, he, what James is saying here. Um, if you have a murder record, if you have... Uh, uh, you know, criminal assault record. If you've robbed stores, if you've stolen cars, and that's all on your record, that's you know, that's that one thing. But there are people who've lived really, really upstanding lives, and um, all they have on their record is that one speeding ticket. That one speeding ticket. Well, if you if you if you ask them, ask those two people, do you have a record? They both have to say yes. 
They both have to say yes. And um, now, I mean, the 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 person who just got the speeding ticket is going to say, "Well, yeah, but don't put me in the same category as them." And what God is saying here is, "Okay, so you're not really in, what that person's done is way more damaging, but, but really, you have a record too. We all have a record, and and it's you, a sin record. It's a sin record. If and you, there it is. If you've broken the law, you've broken the law." And when you say when you say to somebody, "I broke the law once," that could mean a hundred different things. But one thing it does mean is that you violated the law. And, and you know, to go back to our conversation with God, um, God created us for perfection, which is a great and wonderful and beautiful thing. Now that we've abandoned that, though, it's like we can't get back there. So, whether you're a murderer or whether you're just somebody who resents the way your parents treated you when you were a kid. You've broken the law, and you're guilty of that. That's sin. Okay, here's another deep question, begging for a short answer, but we'll do the best we can. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 14, while I admit he's in the context of discussing food regulations and prohibitions, he says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Or we could turn that around and say, sin is whatever does not proceed from faith. Now, that seems to suggest to me, if I'm able to extrapolate that out beyond just food regulations, that people who do not have faith, people who do not have the faith of the Bible, who do not believe in Jesus, maybe they have some other religion, maybe they have no religion, everything they do, because it does not flow from faith, is by definition sin. Am I going, you, you, <laughs> I'm looking at your expression, it's like, I don't think he likes that question. Very I, much. I, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think we can take that out of the context. I, he's talking to two sets of Christians there, and he's saying so. The Christians are disagree in the church in Rome whether they should be allowed to eat meat or not. And Paul's point in Romans fourteen is basically it doesn't matter. You know, if you want to eat meat, eat meat. If you don't want to eat meat, don't meat. Don't eat meat. If the, if you meat eaters, if you're hanging out with the non meat eaters, you need to be gentle. Don't eat meat in front of them just to offend them. And it's kind of his wrap up thing is the important thing here is that if there's something that you believe is wrong, don't do it. It's not it's not wrong to eat meat, but if you're convinced in your conscience that it's wrong to eat meat. Don't do it. Don't violate your conscience just because somebody says it's that's not wrong. And, and so when he says whatever is not a faith, is he's not talking about like the saving faith, you know, the, the the faith, the faithfulness of God that creates faith in our hearts towards Him. He's talking about if you can't do it and be confident that it's right, then don't do it. And um, you know, the way the, in the church that I grew up in, drinking alcohol was a sin. That's the Bible doesn't say that's true, but if if I could go back to that church. I wouldn't say, hey, you know what you guys need to do? You all just need to go get something to drink and relax and enjoy yourself. Because they were wrong that drinking alcohol is a sin, but they really thought it was true. And it would be unjust to force them to drink alcohol because they couldn't do it in faith. They couldn't do it in confidence that I'm not angering. And I think that's what's going on here. I mean, the other thing about that too, though, is this is why this is important is because the Bible insists that people who don't have faith in Jesus and people who do have faith in Jesus all are complete sinners. That everything I do is sinful. 
There's nothing that Aaron Mill, so I'm a Christian. I want to be a good Christian. That everything I do is completely sinful. My, the sermons that I preach are filled up with my sin. The, 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 when, when I put one of my children to bed and I, and I read them a story and then I kiss them on the forehead, that's full of sin. And nothing can, that, that's just the way the human race is now. One of the mysteries. And how it has been. Yes. One of the, I mean, the great mystery of salvation is, like Luther said, and I think I quoted this in here a couple of weeks ago, um, that we, we are snow-covered piles of crap that we're inside and through and through sinful, and yet God has decided to cover us up with the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when he sees us, he sees complete perfection and not that sinfulness that it's there. See, the thing about Christians is that they're not better people than non-Christians. All of us are completely sinful. But the thing about Christians is, is though since they've gone to Jesus, and they've been baptized into Jesus Christ, they've repented of their sins, and they've said, I am a sinner. I know it. I'm not going to blame my biology. I'm not going to blame my upbringing. My nurture, I, my nature. Yep, none of that. I'm gonna, I am completely guilty. God says, okay, for the sake of Jesus Christ, I will now count you as completely 100% innocent. I will baptize you into Jesus so that when I look at you, I don't see you. I actually see Jesus. It doesn't change the fact that I'm still a self-centered son of a gun. But what it does change is that when God looks at me, he sees me as holy and pure. Let's say you're on the golf course, you're on, you're well into your round, you're on the seventh tee with your uh, three buddies there, and uh, one of them decides to just really go off on his wife. He's really... He's really running down his wife, enough to make you and probably your fellow golfers feel uncomfortable. He's sinning. Yes. He's breaking the Eighth Commandment. It's obvious. Then you decide, well, I'm not going to say anything to him about it. I'm not going to call him on it. I choose instead to be forgiving. Is that appropriate or inappropriate? Uh well, it's it's inappropriate. You can't forgive somebody who's not repentant. I can't forgive somebody who hasn't who he he thinks he, what he's doing is completely fine. What about, well, what you, what you do is you forgive him, and then you're off the hook for having to. Well, that's it. So that's it. That's using religious language to get myself off of the responsibility of loving him enough to. And I don't. I'm not saying that like calling him out on that in that moment is the loving thing to do, but loving him enough to invest in the relationship enough. To get to the point where I can say, hey, I, I've really struggled in my marriage too. Let's walk through this together. You know, that's, I mean, that's that's probably the move. I, I can't, but I'm interested to see where you're going with this question, to be honest with you. Well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to take a practical approach here. So we've talked, you know, we've sort of brought sin back into the conversation for those people listening to us have thought about, yeah, we, I haven't thought about sin for like 20 years. Um, let's turn that coin over now. I think we would all agree that the seventh tee is not the place to point your finger at your friend golfer and say, hey, stop talking about your wife like that. That's sin. But if you were to search for that moment privately in order to check him on his behavior or speak to that behavior, would you be unjustifiably judgmental? No, no, unless I, no, unless I'm not doing it to myself, unless I'm not being rigorous and repentant about my own dissatisfactions with my own, with my own wife. 
if I am self-righteous and I'm like, well, he should be more like me. I'm a loving husband and I'm, you know, just a, a wonderful spouse and a partner to my hopefully grateful wife. Then, then that would be wrong. It would be judgmental. But so I, I see where you're going now. I mean, here's the thing: if 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 there's no such thing as sin, and that guy is going on and on about how bad his wife is, and sin doesn't exist, then who am I to say? Maybe the guy's wife is stupid and lousy, or maybe he's drunk. In which case, he can't control what he's saying, so he just let it go, you know. Or maybe he just has an anger problem. It's not his fault. So, you know, his mom treated him poorly, and that's probably why he's got the anger problem. It's probably why he doesn't like his wife. But so whatever his solutions are, you know, he needs to, you know, he needs to cut off the liquor or he needs to maybe go get some therapy or maybe he needs to take some pills or maybe he needs to get divorced. Whatever his solutions are, are very basically, very, very much basic materialistic, you know, fix the problem, you know, fix the environment or fix the biology. But if what he's doing is sin, then I can introduce God. I can introduce God. And so that's a large picture. I, I, I see what you're saying now. You're not asking for a technique and how to bring it up or talk to him. The solution has got to be God. Look, hey, hey, buddy, like I have trashed my marriage, but I've experienced forgiveness from God. And I, I now know I'm not able to love my wife like I should, and she's not able to love me. But God can love both of us infinitely. And so if I can somehow be a reflector of God's love for me back to my wife, I can actually have a better marriage. That, that's the ticket. See, that's the thing about it. Last thing I'll say is that if we, allow the, if we allow sin to be reintroduced, we can allow God to be reintroduced. And if God's reintroduced, then things can be fixed. Last question. Back when we used to have some kind of sin consciousness, there was, I think, sort of a general understanding that there is sin and that there are things that we identify as sin. We used to talk about the seven deadly sins. Mm -hmm. And on one hand, we liked that better because it was less than 10. And on the other hand, we didn't like it because it was deadly. So when we make reference to the seven deadly sins in the context of a person who is listening to us today who may be saying, I've never heard of the seven deadly sins. How do you explain that in this age where sin has sort of gone so far into the background that we don't even talk about anymore? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think just yeah, you just have to read the evening news. Like we don't notice it in ourselves. This is the funny thing about sin is that I'm super self-centered, but I don't notice that I'm being self-centered. I'm just used to doing things what I want. I notice when other people are being self-centered because their self-centeredness impinges on my self-centeredness, you know? Like if you're being self-centered and you're like, no, I want to watch what I want to watch on TV, then my self-centeredness is impinged and I'm like, wait a minute, that guy's real self-centered. That's the thing about self-centeredness. So you can't really look at yourself if you're just starting this sort of project. Just read the evening news and just say to yourself, I'm going to watch the evening news or I'm going to open up the, you know, whatever app that you look at to get your news or webpage. And I'm going to start with the belief that humans are basically good. And there's nothing really wrong with this world except for some bio biological issues or some environment issues. I don't think you, – you can't read the news too much before you're noticing there's murders and carjackings and, and also uh, you know, earthquakes and, and cancer and people stealing stuff. It, it just, just being aware of the world around it, around it should clue us into the fact that our problems are way bigger than we imagine. They are, in fact, deadly. We're killing ourselves. 
we are killing ourselves. And you know what I notice when I take a look at the headlines like you mentioned and I see all of this catastrophe going on? It doesn't seem like it. you have to read too much further to discover that most of it is being explained away or justified. Yes. It's not yes. my fault. Right. And, and, and maybe even worse, nobody has any solutions. Nobody has any solutions except for the old solutions about if you give me more power, I can fix it. Or if you give me more money, I can fix it. There's really no solution to it because it's, it's, it's not a biological problem. It's not an environment problem. It's a sin problem, which means that the only solution is God. God acting in Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus, is the only solution to the deadly problem that we find ourselves in. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner we allow sin back in the conversation, the sooner we can allow Jesus back in the conversation, the sooner things get fixed. Well, I think we scratched the surface. Uh, we probably could do another program on this sometime in the future. We probably should make a note and think about doing something like that. You've been listening to this episode of Craving Answers, Craving God, and we are grateful that you found us. If you find these shows to be enlightening or stimulating, please tell your friends about us. Our podcast is widely available and can be located on several different platforms. For Pastor Aaron Miller and our production manager, Larry O'Leary, I'm Chuck Rathard.